Jingle dancing is primarily a tradition that is embraced by women and increasingly two-spirit people. So in my concern about representation, it made sense to focus on a practice that was really centered within that range of the gender spectrum. Representation matters. In the year 2000, Cynthia Leidick-Smith published her first book, Jingle Dancer, a picture book about Jenna, a contemporary Native girl who wants to dance like Grandma Wolf at powwow. But there's a problem. Jenna doesn't have the jingle she needs to make her dress sing. When Cynthia, a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation, set out to write books for children, she did a survey of the existing children's literature that represented Native American people. And what I found was that representation overwhelmingly skewed to men and boys. Uh, Not necessarily what we would think of today as quality representation, but uh, any number of young white boys who found themselves lost in the woods and were thereby rescued or threatened by Native men. So much is harmful about narratives like these that center white people. Cynthia was struck, though, by the lack of Native women and girls depicted. She decided to make a contribution. In Jingle Dancer, Jenna needs four rows of tin jingles to make her dress sing, and she sets about getting them by asking the women in her community and family. She visits Great Aunt Sis, who tells her a Muscogee Creek folktale. She visits Mrs. Scott, who's making fry bread. She visits Cousin Elizabeth, a lawyer with a big case that weekend. Each offers up a row of jingles to Jenna and asks her to dance for them at powwow. She gets her last row at home from Grandma Wolf. You know, like, I actually remember reading Jingle Dancer with my kids. Ellen O is an author of books for young people, notably the Prophecy series. She's also the founder of the nonprofit We Need Diverse Books and a Korean-American. It was one of my favorites, so it's such a beautiful book. And also because it was the first time I heard about fry bread, and I I went on a mission to eat it after reading it in that book. And I finally got to eat it at like a Smithsonian event when they were opening up the American Indian Museum. So I was like, yes, finally I got to eat fry bread, and it's delicious. I love the focus on a contemporary Native girl. Rosemary Brosnan is the editor at HarperCollins who acquired Jingle Dancer, along with a number of Cynthia's other titles. I think that there's this terrible idea among non-Native people that, that Native people no longer exist. And so many books about Native people were set in the 19th century. I mean, there just still are not enough books about contemporary Native kids. And I think that Native kids really need to see themselves in books, and I think non-Native kids need to see them as well. I remember being on a panel with Tim Tingle, who also is another Native writer that I admire greatly, and he said that he would do school visits and kids would say, but you're extinct. And that just broke my heart. And, or kids would say to him, but why aren't you wearing your real clothing? Right? Like, because this expectation of a stereotype that they've all grown up knowing. Cynthia's familiar with these kinds of erasures. Uh, Cousin Elizabeth is in 
very much a mainstream profession. She's a practicing attorney, which is extremely important to Native people as we are in ongoing conversations through the courts about our treaty rights, about protecting the environment, about other matters that are of integral importance to Native people. One editor in particular pinpointed Cousin Elizabeth and she said, it's so wonderfully aspirational that you would have this Native woman attorney on the page in a children's book. But even as much as we might want something like that to be true, we're just not there yet. And so it seems premature and you know, essentially disingenuous to include a Native woman lawyer because Native women lawyers didn't exist. I don't know that it actually occurred to her that the person she was talking to was a, someone who held both a law degree from the University of Michigan and a tribal ID. Since representation is so important, I was curious what books by Black, Indigenous, or other authors of color impacted Cynthia as a child. When I was a very young girl, I tended to avoid depictions of Native people in children's literature, which is interesting because I was an avid reader. I loved to read. My mama took me on Saturday mornings to the public library when I was little. Cynthia's permission books, the books that gave her permission to write the kinds of stories she wanted to write, are books she encountered as an adult. She cites Dancing with the Indians by Angela Shelf Medeiros and Eagle Song by Joseph Bruchak as two of the books that inspired her. Really, in the case of both of those, just the idea that a narrative for children could be contemporary at all, could reflect modern day and modern Indigenous people, was a signal to me that maybe we were seeing a little bit more light and opportunity in terms of room for voices that would resonate to Native kids today. Ellen is also a writer, so I asked her the same question. What books by diverse writers inspired her as a kid? She said she loved The Count of Monte Cristo without knowing that Alexandra Dumas was Black until she was an adult. She also cited A Wrinkle in Time as very influential to her, though Madeline Langle's classic tale was not diverse until Ava DuVernay's film adaptation in 2018. You know, it was a girl with glasses, a nerdy girl with glasses that loved books. I mean, I could totally relate to her. So I loved that book. I think that it really kind of in the back of my head was possibly why I really wanted to write children's books because that was like that one classic children's book that I loved. I think that the first time I actually saw myself represented in the pages of the book was until I was in college and that was the Joy Luck Club. And like I remember reading that book and for the first time I felt like, oh my gosh, this is me, this is my family. This is my experience. Yeah, they're Chinese, I'm Korean, but this is the first time I'm seeing a book that's representative of what my experience as an Asian American is, right? And I think that when I read that book, it was really kind of like an earth-shattering moment for me because I realized at that moment what had been missing my entire life. Wow, what would have been like if I had seen books like this when I was younger, you know? After the success of Jingle Dancer, Cynthia wanted to write a story focused on boys and men. The result was the tender linked story collection, Indian Shoes, about Ray Halfmoon, a seminal boy who lives with his grandfather in Chicago. In the title story, 
Ray doesn't have the money he needs to outbid a white librarian for a pair of traditional native moccasins that he wants to give to his grandfather. The librarian needs the real Indian shoes for a display she's putting together for the library. He convinces her to trade with him and gives her his high top sneakers for the display instead, worn, he promises, by a real Indian. In Indian shoes, Ray and his grandfather go to ball games and weddings and Ray wins an art contest. Putting her characters in contemporary urban settings was really important to Cynthia. Upwards of 80% of Native families live away from their tribal homelands in cities for a variety of reasons, including college job opportunities on a more somber note, relocation and other negative assimilation practices that they would need to be able to see themselves as heroes of their own stories too. Indian Shoes is filled with warm familial humor, which is a quality Cynthia was very intentional about. Humor is a huge part of dialogue and interpersonal relationships in the Native community. Everyone can agree, or at least the vast majority of us can agree on those things that are very, very sad. But a sense of humor is idiosyncratic. And if you can laugh together, you really understand one another. And Cynthia's decision to make the stories episodic and linked rather than a linear novel reflects a cultural significance as well. In Indian country, there is not necessarily as much of a strong emphasis on linear narratives. There is more of an idea that we are all living in the past, present, and future all of the time. The ending of Indian Shoes is especially poignant as Ray and his grandfather return to their tribal land and go fishing in the early morning for something bigger, Ray's grandfather says, than fish. As they look up at the stars, the reader is given the impression that they are communing with the spirits of their lost loved ones, Ray's parents included. My feeling was that we are all star stuff, right? We are all of the universe and connected to one another. So when we're thinking about something like that, a a young boy and his grandfather, the continuity of generations over time, looking out into that universe, As vast as it is, there is an intimacy to all of creation that I hoped would bring young readers into the storytelling circle in a deeper way to reinforce what they had read and also to send them out with a sense that they're never alone. There is always love for them and all things that the creator has brought to us. Cynthia's early books with Native protagonists were all published in the first couple years of the 2000s. Jingle Dancer was published in 2000 and Indian Shoes in 2002. And then, as publishers shifted away from representation and inclusion, the market for books like Cynthia's dried up. I came in on the tail end of what was then written off as a trend. Uh, Multiculturalism, I was told by influential folks someone in marketing and a major publisher that I was on very good terms with socially, you know, Cynthia, black and brown children just don't read. We tried it and it didn't work. I was told by a dear friend, I mean, these were not people being hostile to me. They were just trying to be candid. Well, maybe, she said, if Kevin Costner makes another movie, you'll be able to write another book someday. And with all due respect to Kevin and 
his vast cinematic appeal. That was a hard thing to hear. In response, Cynthia pivoted. She began writing paranormal stories with large casts that included Native characters, like the Feral Trilogy, in which kids can shapeshift into animals. And for what it's worth, it worked. Mainstream reviewers understood werecats in a way they apparently didn't understand Native people, and the books made bestseller list. I mean, it was really heady. I could compete in some ways more effectively with white writers in their own territory than I could holding my own from my own perspective against their mythology about who I was. Cynthia has built her career pushing for broader representation of Native voices, but she's not interested in returning to that multicultural boom of the late 90s, which she felt was very limited and limiting. It was very much centered on the idea that these books were meant to educate white kids about non-white communities. It, it wasn't as expansive as what We Need Diverse books brought years later, 2014-ish, inspired largely by Walter Dean Meyer's landmark uh, Times article and uh, underrepresentation on panels at major conferences. Ellen O, co-founder, president, and CEO of We Need Diverse Books was at that conference, BookCon 2014 which played an integral role in the organization's founding. At first, it was just one children's literature panel. When that announcement of that first panel came out and it was all white males, and as we know, there's a lot of women writers, especially in Kidlet. So all the women writers were really angry. All the white women writers and all of the writers of color were like, welcome to our world. And then the conference announced its lineup for the main event. And when they made that announcement, there were plenty of women writers, but there was only one diverse, shall we say, character in that lineup, and it was the grumpy cat. So literally, this was kind of that moment where even like allies, you know, could actually see what we were going through, like what writers of color were always going through. Even as of 2019, according to We Need Diverse Books website, more children's book characters are animals than people of color. A bunch of us got together and it wasn't just about putting together a hashtag. It was about trying to make programming that could actually make a difference. Ellen and her colleagues founded We Need Diverse Books, a nonprofit that runs advocacy campaigns and programs aimed at writers and illustrators, at parents, teachers, and librarians, and at publishers. The organization has gone on to make a big difference. Again, Rosemary Brosnan, editor at HarperCollins. When We Need Diverse Books started, I used to use them when I went into an acquisitions meeting and say, well, there's this new organization, we need diverse books, and they're saying blah, 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 and we need, and it was just so nice to have this backup of this really well-respected, thoughtful organization. We Need Diverse Books and L&O have been instrumental in establishing a Native Books imprint at HarperCollins called Heart Drum. 
Heartdrum launched this past winter and Cynthia is author curator, working in partnership with her longtime editor, Rosemary Brosnan. The idea started percolating, like coffee at a hotel breakfast, at a writer's conference. You know, I thought to myself, oh, Ellen wants to have breakfast. We were at a conference hotel and we met and I was just happy to catch up with her. And she had a bit of a hidden agenda. She suggested to me that it would be such a wonderful opportunity if a Native imprint existed at a major publisher. And I I said to her, yes, that would be wonderful if something like that happened. And she said, I think you would be a terrific person to head that up. And I thought that that was very flattering. She's like, me? What do you mean me? I can't do that. What are you talking about? I'm not fancy enough. I'm like, you truly are very fancy. And she pointed out that there were more of these author-curated imprints popping up like Rick Gardens and uh, Kwame Alexander's. And I said, okay, well, let's think about this. You know, Rick and Kwame, and I was about to say, are famous and fancy. And she cut me off and she said, are men. And it still seemed like a long shot to me, however chastened I might have been in the moment. And she said, okay, well, you think about it and I'll just check in, which she did lovingly with a little nudge as good friends do. I might have nagged her a little bit too, but eventually she came back. Less than a year, I would say over six months later, it was in September, and I was teaching a workshop specifically for Native children's writers. We were in Cook, Minnesota at a lodge on lake in Ojibwe country. I just had some really good rice. I was feeling warm and happy on a screened-in porch overlooking the water and all the manuscripts from the participants were spread out in front of me on a table as I was going over and preparing notes on them. And inside, I could hear the authors talking to one another and laughing. And I was looking at the work on the pages in front of me, and it was gorgeous work. I mean, Angeline Bully's early draft of Firekeeper's Daughter was there which is getting so much wonderful attention and was just acquired by Barack and Michelle Obama's production company for adaptation. Carol Lindstrom's We Are Water Protectors was one of the stories that was read and that just won the Caldecott for Michaela Goad's gorgeous art. Carol's one of the best poets I've ever heard. It was a powerful group. Don Quigley was there, Stacey Wells, who was this really exciting up and coming mystery writer from middle grade. And I I realized, I was like, these writers deserve to have a fair shot at their stories being read and shared and celebrated, and kids deserve a chance to read them. Things moved quickly from there. It was Halloween, October 31st of 2018, And Cynthia wrote an email to me and she said that Ellen O at We Need Diverse Books had been asking Cynthia to do a Native children's book imprint. And so she wrote me an email and I read the email. I was so excited. I sent it to Suzanne right away. Suzanne is Suzanne Murphy, the president and publisher at HarperCollins Children's Books. I went into Suzanne's office and she said, do you want to do this? I said, yes. She said, okay. By the next day, November 1st, I called Cynthia and said yes. Rosemary has spent her career championing diverse authors and bringing diverse books into the world. She's a white woman whose Jewish heritage reinforced an awareness and commitment to interrupt systems of injustice 
I asked Cynthia what makes Rosemary someone Native writers can trust. She comes in from a place of humility. She takes time to reflect. She does a lot of independent research on her own. And she is extraordinarily mindful that we face additional challenges, that we may have come in with some pre-existing trauma. It's the scariest thing in the world to put your voice on the page for anyone. But if you add to it those additional levels of historical and personal negative messaging from the overarching society, it's really tough. I remember when I went to school, and I'm from a family that was adversely affected by the U.S. boarding school's experience. Uh, My mother said to me, she said, you're Indian, you know, because it was 1970s. You're Indian, be proud of it. But don't tell anyone, because if you do, they won't like you. And so many Native kids fly under the radar at schools across the continent because Due to our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents' experiences, we've been taught from the earliest ages that schools are not safe places. Our identities are not necessarily safe to proclaim. So to put those elements, those deeply felt experiences, memories, hopes, what we would wish for our future generations on the page, that requires so much from us. And Rosemary really thinks about that. She cares in a way that is tangible and radiant, and we can feel the warmth from it, and that creates a trust. One of the first books that Heart Drum has published is The Sea in Winter, the second book by Christine Day, a member of the Upper Skagit Nation from the Pacific Northwest. The Sea in Winter tells the story of Maisie, a 12-year-old girl who dreams of becoming a ballet dancer, but who can't dance because of an injury. Maisie is from a blended family. Her mom is from the Macaw Nation, which is native to the Pacific Northwest. Her biological dad was an East Coast Piscataway. And her stepdad, Jack, is from the Sclalem people, also from the Washington area. As Maisie tries to heal her body, she neglects her heart, pretending to her family, to her friends, and to one concerned teacher that she's fine, until a family hiking trip to ancestral land forces the issue. My feet touch the ground and I lift my face to the sky, to all those bending branches and drifting clouds, and I'm daydreaming again about returning to the studio, about standing in my sanctuary, that bright, open space, the wide windows, the mirror-lined walls, and then the impossible happens. My foot catches on a root. There's a split second of unstoppable momentum a white-hot zing of pain, and I catch myself too late. Maisie is crushed, all those months of physical therapy undone. Her mother helps her make sense of her disappointment by telling her stories. They're in the hospital where doctors assess Maisie's knee when her mother tells her the story of her biological dad's death, how she wished for so hard and for so long to change the past so that his death would never occur. But eventually, she came to accept the reality of her situation and be present to the life she was living. And I ask her, how? Because it occurs to me that I've never really asked this. How did she find the strength to move on? How did she keep going, even after everything? Well, she says, I turn to the teachings of my ancestors for one thing. 
I looked back at our histories of resilience and survival. Christine is a writer of tremendous emotional intelligence. As she feels deeply, she is a person whose warmth you feel whenever you interact with her. And she cares so much, she has so much respect for her young audience. I think the sea and winter gives kids permission to have all of their feelings. You don't have to fulfill that Tonto-esque stereotype. You can be the child that you are and you can be on a journey toward healing to and toward embracing previously unknown or underappreciated aspects of yourself, appreciating your strength over time while still being able to have the hard feelings too. It's really about how she goes through a depression, which of course many kids do, and that's often not talked about. Depression among, you know, kids who are 12 or so. And how Maisie comes to really learn to rely on her family and the wonderful support system that she has to help her through this time. And it's really a beautiful, very thoughtful story. The Sea in Winter makes me wonder about kids coming out of this strange, isolated, and disrupted pandemic year. It gives young readers, native or not, permission to say, this is too hard and I'm struggling. The book is a loving, warm reminder that it's okay for kids not to be okay. And Cynthia explained that heart drum books are for all readers. There is increasingly an idea that these books will be embraced by children beyond those who are indigenous, that they are vital for every young reader, that especially those who are living on this continent, they're, they're living on ancestral native land. They need an understanding of what that means. They need to appreciate that we are people who are of the past, yes, but also the present and the future, so they can come together with us on common goals and be good friends and good allies. So Cynthia has moved from being a writer and teacher to having a more bird's eye view of contemporary Native children's literature. I was curious what trends she was noticing in her work with Heart Drum. We're definitely seeing an emphasis on Indigenous languages. And I believe that this is part of a reclamation effort. I, I mentioned the U.S. Federal Indian Boarding Schools earlier, and that experience led to a lot of families losing their language in, because the Native children who were taken, generation the Native children, were forbidden to speak them. And we're seeing more intersectional representation there's a lot of diversity within Indian country, intertribal and otherwise, socioeconomic in terms of body type. Uh, Black Native people are an important part of the community, as are those whose first language may be Spanish. So the idea of these bright line boxes that divided us when our families were really more fluid in those ways are being knocked down by truer narratives that do justice to our complexity, our humanity, and our connection to each other. I asked Ellen what she was most excited about coming out of the Heart Drum imprint. Oh, I mean, I think that the most exciting part is that there are so many, right, different Native American stories that, that can be brought, you know, funny chapter books and just these kind of like 
heartwarming, beautiful, quiet books, and then also fantasy books. I mean, that's what I want to see, right? This kind of breadth of diversity, not just by who's writing it, but the stories that they're going to tell. And I'm just so excited and I can't wait to see what else comes out. Cynthia echoes the importance of a broad array of Native voices. Well, it's it, it's idiosyncratic. I, if there was one single voice, I certainly wouldn't want it to be only mine. This is true on the page and off. When I speak at conferences and workshops, I will often say to people, please continue this conversation with my Native creative colleagues and friends. You can have a Native perspective, you cannot have the Native perspective, and you you can't have your own perspective be somehow representative of your tribe. In some ways, that warning applies to publishing houses, who Cynthia has said in other interviews would publish one marquee Native writer and ignore the plethora of other voices thinking that they had checked the box for Native representation. But this model of old school multiculturalism crowds out too many important voices and makes tokens of the writers who do get elevated. Well, I think that what seeing all these books for me does is it it also empowers me to tell my stories, right? It, it reminds me that we are all part of this big table that we're you know, kind of pulling a seat up to and sharing our stories together. And I love that. Like, I think that storytelling is one of the most important things we can do in life. It's kind of how we learn to relate to each other how we learn about each other. It's not just books, but it's experiences that we're sharing. And what types of experiences does Ellen want to share? Her new book, Finding Junie Kim, comes out May 4th, and she calls it her most personal book. It's my kid's story. It is my dad's story. And specifically, it's about my mom's experience as a lost kid of the Korean War. Ellen had heard her mother tell bits of this war story from a child's point of view over the years. Oh, you know, four little kids walking in bomb-torn roads and so hungry and it was terrible weather and, and we couldn't find our parents and we had to find them. And all of a sudden, on this road, we turn and we find them. And it's just kind of like, uh, you know, it was almost too fairy tale like and I never really truly believed it. The story crystallized in Ellen's mind when her aunt came from Korea and filled out the picture. And I realized, oh my God, this really did happen. I mean, they were 10 years old, 11 years old, and then they had two little brothers that were two and and four. And they were out on the roads walking, just walking, trying to find their parents for weeks. And I remember thinking, wow, this has to be something that I can write into a book that that I can memorialize. But she still needed a reason to tell this difficult story. Incidents of systemic and interpersonal anti-Asian racism that harmed her children provided her motivation. It wasn't until I started seeing what was happening in the world around my kids and the bullying and the prejudice that was kind of rising up again. And my own kids having a lot of issues with depression and, you know, just they were just suffering. And and that's how the story came together. Kind of like you know, looking at history and then also looking at the present. And I tried to kind of bridge those stories together. So that's what uh, Finding Junie Kim's about. Kind of like, you know, a modern kid 
having to deal with bullying and racism and then learning about the experiences of her grandparents during the Korean War and realizing how hard that was and that she's a survivor and that she's strong. Stories of their ancestors, like the story of Maisie's ancestors, can be a healing bomb for young readers. Cynthia has edited an anthology of linked stories called Ancestor Approved that Heartdrum will publish this year. The stories all revolve around the same powwow, and the protagonist of one story will emerge as a supporting character in another. What we did is decide to craft a collection of stories and poetries that would showcase some of the diversity within Indian country. And so an intertribal powwow made sense. It's a public event. You can invite people to it. So all readers would be invited into it. And by connecting the stories, we gave it a a feeling of a real time and place so that young readers could come in and get to know a protagonist in, say, Monique Gray Smith's story and then reconnect with that same hero later on. The writers who contributed worked collaboratively to maintain time, place, and even weather consistency to find ways to link the stories. It was a lot of fun, and it was also a way to pair new and -and up-and-coming voices with those who were more established, say, a first-time writer like Brian Young, who's Navajo, with a well-established writer like Eric Gansworth, who's Onondaga, and give them a chance to build community, too. So... We were building community both on and off the page creatively with the idea of then inviting young readers in. And Heart Drum will publish Cynthia's newest book, coming out in June of this year, called Sisters of the Never See. She describes it as a very indigenous, very modern, and very girl-centered update to J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. It's a book that's been controversial in Indian country for a long time, and I think it invited us to talk back which we did, but at the same time, it's ultimately a celebration of blended families and found families. Lily Roberts, my modern take on Tiger Lily, is a member of my own nation. She and Wendy Darling are stepsisters who must rescue little brother Michael from Peter and the island and return back home. So it's a lot of fun. And, you know, you're talking three-dimensional Indigenous characters, We took a much different approach with regard to disability and villainy. And not every girl is in love with Peter on the island. I'm sure he is still very sad about that. But perhaps it's time for all Peter Pans to rethink their appeal. Again, representation matters. And not just nominal representation, but broad intersectional representation. Writers, like Ellen said so well, pull up a seat at the table to share their stories. Stories they imagine, stories they've lived, stories that have been passed down to them from their ancestors. These stories enrich the lives both of young readers who are like them and of young readers who are not. But for readers alienated by the dominant culture, for kids who are the victims of active racism, these stories do more than just resonate. So when you don't see yourselves in the books, Those moments, those negative moments is almost all you have. And the only way we can counter that is by allowing kids to see that they do belong and that these books are here to show you that you are supposed to be here too. That's how important they are. They are not just life-changing, but they're life-saving. 
The heart drum imprint at HarperCollins is just one remedy to a dominant culture underserving too many of our kids. The stories coming out of the imprint are boisterous, joyful, myriad, and intersectional. They're filled with warmth and family. As Cynthia said, laughter is the best medicine. And we can't wait to share them with you. Check out our heart drum titles at the link in the show notes. And tell us what you think on Twitter at ReadingPod. If you love the podcast, you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Visit RememberReading.com where you can learn more about our episodes. Remember Reading is produced by Kate Piggott and Josh Suey of Podfly Productions. I'm Sonia Sells. Until next time.